Ladies and gentlemen, I don't know about you, but I feel like if a vaccine has a, a slight chance of causing blood clots, maybe you should pull it back a bit and actually make some tests and get some concrete evidence. Just me? No? Continue on? Alright, cool. In the words of Public Enemies, Chuck D, bring the noise. From the Fifth Open Podcast Network, I am Charlie Taylor, and this is What's Good. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Hope you have all had a good week in the circumstances. Um, yeah, I just, I just, I don't know. I don't know, guys. Like this Oxford, Oxford AstraZeneca thing going on. Like I keep seeing uh, headlines about it. I'm just like, guys, I feel like if you're going to talk about it for more than a month... I feel like it should just be, you know, pulled back until, you know, some concrete evidence has been fulfilled. Because I thought, you know, at the start of it, when it was coming up last month, I was like, uh, well, you know, shit, like, what are you going to do, right? But I feel like if you're going to talk about it and there's going to be either report, more reports or just more, I don't know, circumstantial evidence about it, whatever, 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 whether it's negative or positive, um, I just feel like, you know, if you're going to keep talking about it, pull it back. Pull it back. And I actually just saw a headline recently saying that uh, young adults under 30 have the option to get an alternative vaccine, which um, once I get my phone call or text or whatever, I am not picking that one. Trust me on that. So, yeah. And uh, the UK recently just got Moderna. So we have three now. Three? Yeah, three. So, yeah. I'm either getting that Pfizer or that Moderna. Trust me on that. But until then, uh, I haven't got a word from it. I have no idea when I'm going to get it. But uh, yeah, man, exciting times ahead. Just <laughs> not for Oxford, just AstraZeneca. As for day, I'm sure. But uh, apart from that, it's all bless. It's all bless. Uh, Masters are coming up in the next couple of days. Well, throughout the throughout the weekend. I don't know why, but it's like the only golf tournament I watch. Um, like I'll just sit down with my mum and we watch highlights of it. I think she, I think we just both like the scenery of the Masters, and how uh, and you know with my recent learnings of you know just general life and society and stuff like that, um, I, I I just love the the unapologetic uh, <laughs> uh, Lily Lily White's uh, life that it occurs over there. You know, I mean, just everything's green, everything's perfect, not grass, not a blade of grass out of place. And it's just going to be a load of rich pe- rich, rich men playing golf. You know, what I mean, it's just, it's just nice. It's just nice. You you don't you don't see any of the any of the stuff that goes on in other sports. You know what I mean? And I will talk about one particular sport for this episode. Uh, we'll get to that in the uh, in the uh, late latter quarter of the episode. But um, yeah, it's just um, golf is just so untouched. You know what I mean? But uh, you know that's that's uh, they're gonna they're gonna be uh. There's gonna come a time. There will come a time where life and uh, life outside golf will uh, finally start to creep in uh, into the golf ranks. And uh, yeah, we'll see how that goes. We'll see how that goes. But for the moment, let's just in- smell, literally smell the roses from the TV and whatever flowers are there in uh, springtime, Augusta, Georgia, and uh, enjoy the Masters. But I, that's what that's what I'll be doing for 
for some reason. I, I don't know. I don't, I don't even rate golf like that, but um, I just enjoy the Masters. Why not? It's just one of those things, isn't it? But anyway, we have a show to do. So let's get to it. Four Mancies before we begin. Email to us IG. Discord link. And fucking IG, man. Like Just before I get to this, right? I get to this show. IG's pissing me off, right? I'm I, I trying to post something on stories, right? And uh, it's, it's still literally... Like, it was, I usually post like a little agenda for like what the episode's going to be about. You know what I mean? Before, like, a day before. And uh, it's still it's still posting, quote-unquote. Like, what what's taking so long? And before that, it wouldn't even do it. I had to keep trying again, trying again, trying again. Went to walk the dog, tried again, it was there, and now it's half-loaded, and it's just it's just sitting there in purgatory. Like, why is Instagram so shit with IG stories? It doesn't make sense to me. Is it just me? Like, I, try to po- like, I, I try to post some, like, uh, you know, podcast links and stuff like that via Spotify, because they have, a, like, a dedicated, you know, uh, uh, I guess a plug-in? I don't know the correct term for it. For it, but, um, you know... And and for the past, like, a couple of weeks, it was just nothing. So I had to take a screenshot of my shit. I was like, IG is fucking... IG stories are ghetto as fuck. It's annoying the fuck out of me. But anyway. IG. <laughs> Discord link. Oh, show notes. All that, all that. Uh, go, read the, go peep the article links um, and other links. I have... Uh, uh, well, I posted, I posted other links. So, uh, yeah, no. Just click all of them and uh, take a peep for whatever you feel. And uh, yeah, without further ado, let the beat drop and let's get into the show. In a week where hashtag kill the bill protests go down in London, uh, Southampton, Manchester, Leeds and other cities resulting in sit-ins, Arrests and injuries. Um, I'm surprised. Um, I'm, I'm surprised reactionaries haven't, uh, you know, seen the hashtag kill the bill and haven't, like, you know, uh, twisted it into oh, oh, look, they want to kill the police. They want to kill other humans. No, it's like uh, I'm, I'm very surprised. I haven't seen that rhetoric come through yet. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> Uh, but yeah, kill the bill is obviously for the bill, the police and court and sentencing, whatever the fuck it's called, bill, uh, that we covered a couple of weeks ago, and uh, yeah, there's been a couple of protests for that, and I fully support that front. Uh, half a billion <laughs> Facebook accounts have been leaked. I actually, uh, I've left the link on the full show notes uh, uh, going to, have I been zucked? Uh, which basically means uh, you, if you go on the link, uh, it will ask you for like uh, if your phone number or e- email address, whatever you feel, and uh, they will tell you if you have been part of those leaks. Um, but what I found, what I found out uh, via when I got the results, is actually um, the information they gave me was from the 2019 Facebook leaks that they had uh, 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 at that time. So. Shit, man. <laughs> My shit was leaked three years ago, and I didn't even clock. So yeah, and funny enough, I did get two phone calls recently uh, that had really odd numbers, and I was just like, you know what? I'm gonna leave those, and uh, if they give me a voicemail, they'll give me a voicemail. If they don't, they don't. And ladi da, they didn't give me a voicemail. So what does that tell you? I don't, I don't, don't wanna, don't wanna say anything, you know, concrete, but. I'm just I'm just saying there was a leak a couple of you know a week ago from Facebook and now I'm getting two 
uh, phone calls in the space of an hour from different numbers. Okay. Anyway, continuing on. Uh, Paul Simon, uh, Simon the Gun Fogel fan, sells his song catalog to Sony, um, like, you know, him, Bob Dylan, uh, Lil Wayne to a kind of a different extent, but obviously he's sold his shit as well. I'm just, I don't know, there's something like really depressing about that. About just like selling all your shit, you know, all your cat- entire catalogs as a corporation. I don't know, it just seems so. I'm sure him and Bob Dylan have their reasons, and you know, I'm, I'm, I guarantee you they, they got a big bag for it, but I don't know, it just, it, it just makes me feel sad that people are just giving away their art in their fashion wholesale. It's just, I don't know, it's just like, there's no, no uh, it just feels mechanical. There's no, I don't know. I don't know what I expect there to be sold for selling, but, you know, ugh, just these a bad taste in my mouth anyway. Uh, DMX, Sovis, a drug overdose. Obviously, that's been a, um, uh, the reports on that have been ongoing in the past few past few days. Um, you know, just uh, all thoughts to DMX, um, you know. Uh, we talked about that briefly on uh, Digging Digits this week, and uh, Ben put it very succinctly. Um, so... Uh, yeah, go peep that if you want to have f- f- a good thoughts on that. And uh, yeah, man, I'm just hoping he falls through, man, because obviously, uh, if you know the story of DMX, uh, superbly, I think, misunderstood as an artist. Because when you, you know, when you listen to his popular stuff, you just think he's like the aggro dude, but he's got some deep shit in his catalog, man. Like real deep shit, real deep, real, you know, inner demons kind of music. And uh, yeah, man, if you really get into his catalog and really give him a chance, man, there's some. There's some really enlightening stuff on there, um, and uh, one thing I actually gleaned from, you know, listening to his stuff uh, in the past few months was, um, well, last year anyway, was um, I'm glad I don't relate to it. <laughs> you know, what I mean, it's one of those discographies where I'm kind of glad I don't relate to it because, fuck, you know, if I related to that stuff, woof, that's a that's a that's some turmoil right there. But anyway, he's he's suffered a drug overdose. He's still in the hospital at the moment. Uh, I think he suffered a heart attack initially, and as a, I think he's been needed, been needed to resuscitate. Uh, in need to resuscitate is that the phrase uh, for the past uh, a couple of times now, and uh, yeah, man, I think at this point it's a family decision maybe. Uh, coming, it's coming up to that kind of realm, but we'll see how it goes and uh, keep up on that. And lastly, Stanford and Baylor win the women and men's NCAA basketball national championship. And speaking of, well, not speaking of, <laughs> I was gonna, I thought I was gonna get into sport then, but that's the last. Uh, we hop into life, and uh, I'm sorry, guys, I just have to, I have to get into this, uh, this, uh, they, the people are calling it the Sewell Report now, um, which I don't want to call it, but he was the head commissioner of it, and uh, you know, take take that information what you will, and I did say last week, go look up um, uh, Tony Sewell, Doctor Tony Sewell. And see the stuff he has said over the past few years in his uh, professional career. And uh, you can see why people have been in uproar about it. There was actually a Good Today in Focus episode via The Guardian. A little podcast episode about it. Uh, Very good episode. I think uh, you should peep that if you want a a good, just half an hour of uh, good info. Um, And I found these tweets uh, from uh, Nadine White, who I did mention last week. um, The uh, uh, race correspondent uh, for The Independent. And uh, she gave some good tweets, actually, as it pertains to um, uh, the health of uh, of uh, of uh, black Asian minority ethnic communities. Uh, so, so I want to give these tweets right quick, just to 
just to set up um, the actual article I wanted to read. Um, so she goes, uh, new inflammatory language in uh, landmark report on racial disparities could put the lives of black Asian minority ethnic communities, quote, at further risks, unquote, according to more than 30 health groups. Uh, the Consortium of Black Asian Minority Ethnic uh, Health Professional Network said it's dismayed, quote-unquote, uh, that report by the Commission on Race and Ethnic Disparities, uh, quote-unquote, downplay the significant impact of racism in Britain. On how lives could be lost, uh, Dr. Salman uh, Wakar, consortium coordinator, said taking the report seriously could lead to policy and interventions that would not be designed to dismantle the structural racism that blights people's lives, uh, because uh, because commission argues it doesn't exist. And lastly, uh, the consortium said the legacy of slavery, uh, the Windrush scandal, the Grenfell Tower fire, and the disproportionate deaths of minority ethnic frontline workers, including Belly Majinga, um, who, uh, well, yeah, including Belly Majinga, who obviously died around this time uh, last year. Still no justice on that front. Um, but yeah, just wanted to shout that out. And uh, during the pandemic, quote unquote, all highlight the structural barriers that exist in society. And um, yeah, it's just this whole thing just sets a precedent, you know what I mean? Because there have been actual, um, I didn't say this last week um, because obviously the report came out very, you know, quickly. Um, but you know, there have been other reports in the past few years, some by the government. Um, you know, there's a Windrush report from a few years ago, and there were some uh, um, recommendations on that front. Um, I know there are a few other reports uh, done in the past five, five to seven years um, that have d- kind of um, directly um, shat on what this report is about, and kind of makes this report redundant on that front. Um, but, you know, for some reason they just had to get this one out, had to get this one out for whatever reason, and obviously we know the reasons here. Um, but I wanted to get into this article... Uh, that came out the 1st of April um, by Simon Woolley. So I want to give you a, just a little bit of um, background on who Simon Woolley is first, because, um, you know, this isn't like anybody that, you know, any radical person. This guy is um, a baron, right? <laughs> baron Woolley of Woodford, okay? This is his official title, okay? He's a member of the House of Lords, um, founder and director of Operation Black Vote, and trustee of the Charity Police Now um, and he's been a crossbench member of the House of Lords since 2019, right, okay, so this dude's in it, okay, he's not like a radical outsider, he's in it, okay, um, so I just, and that's all stuff you can just Google, right, that's, I literally just read off what Google told me, right, so that's just the basics of where he's at, like, he's in the House of Lords, he's in that political uh, system in some fashion, right, he's, he's there, and the words he gives on this, uh, in this opinion piece, uh, are very just, um, I feel, uh, overall, just uh, give a great uh, all-around point to where uh, to how people um, see this report. I feel like it's just a very um, great place to start on how people. I feel like um, should think about this report, um, but obviously you guys can think for yourselves on that front. And I could have given a few others. I probably could have done a whole episode uh, with um, you know different. Uh, pieces uh, as it pertains to a report i found one about health which was very enlightening uh with loads of references uh but i just wanted to get into this because it's just a really good opinion and i feel like uh, since it's someone that is in the parliamentary system in some fashion i feel like that just adds a bit of weight um so yes uh, and and just to say he was a you know chair of the number 10 race disparity unit until july last year so hey 
<laughs> he's, he's in it. Anyway, so let's just jump right into the circle. I can imagine the reaction of people of colour um, to the publication of the government's race disparity commission. Many will either have screamed with anger or cried with sadness. The commission's chair, Dr. Tony Saul, told the BBC, quote, this is a truly historic report, unquote. On that we agree... Uh, it is a truly historic denial of the scale of race inequality in Britain, deli- delivered pri- precisely at a moment in our national history when the opposite is required. Let's remember why this commission and this report came out. Last summer, as COVID-19 struck our nation in an unprecedented and tragic way, it became clear it was having a disproportionate and devastating impact on African, Asian, Caribbean and other racial minority communities. Black people were four times more likely to die. Pakistani, Bangladeshi and Filipino were three times more likely. The evidence from numerous uh, studies showed the social determinants, many of which have a racial element, were factors. For example, low-paid and zero-hour workers, such as cleaners, security security guards and care workers, were hit hard. Many of them had no choice but to put their lives, and hence their loved loved ones' lives, in danger as they had to go to work to pay the rent and feed their families. As that tragedy tragedy was unfolding, the brutal killing of George Floyd inspired demonstrations around the world. Here in the UK, black and white people protested that his treatment at the hands of law enforcement agents had lessened for us too, that that there was clear evidence that black life in all areas and at all levels of our society was less valued than white life. This, the protesters argued, was the legacy of economic and political systems embedded into the national fabric for centuries that sought to justify the first the enslavement of Africans and then the theft of resources across Africa and Asia. It did so by asserting white superiority and black and brown inf- inferiority. At its worst, we could be killed with impunity, with no accountability, but on a regular basis, almost daily, our talent could be locked out and denied. The government had to react to the events of last summer and and to appear to be doing something, so it commissioned an inquiry into racism. But in producing uh, this report, it, ha- it has patently, patent, patently, patently, patently failed to make any useful contribution. This report has almost no answers to the plethora of inequalities that COVID has uncovered in education, health, housing, and employment. To have published it at any time, uh, published at any time in the last 20 years, would have been seen as a whitewash. To do so after the months of heartache and the awareness raising of the past year is almost criminally, criminally negligent. It is a huge uh, missed opportunity when the nation feels ready for change and open to the idea of real long-lasting work to undo the scourge of racism. Imagine for a moment that instead of denigrating the hundreds of thousands of peaceful protesters who rallied to the cause of Black Lives Matter and patronisingly accused them of quote-unquote well-being idealism, the government and its race commission chose to listen to them. It would hear about the lived experience of young black people being nine times more likely to be stopped and searched and twice twice as likely to lose their jobs during the pandemic. Only last week, The Guardian reported on the state of racial equality in education with uh, blackhead teachers saying that their lives have had been made miserable by years of microaggressions. Uh, This should have been our 1945 moment, a time when, as a nation, we could be big and bold enough not only to acknowledge the historic and continuing embedded racism, but come up with a plan to deal with it. 
For example, make the reporting of ethnic, ethnic pay gaps compulsory for all companies, recruit more black teachers, police with consent for with consentful communities, make boardrooms, uh, do far more to bring in racially diverse talent, and have an honest conversation about Britain's history, the bad as well as the good, and show how the past still very much influences the present. But instead of embarking on a potentially transformative conversation, this shameful commission report has retreated to, into denial. <coughs> and worse than the denial, many of the headline findings are that the nation should be focusing on white working class children rather than race discrimination. This is perhaps the most troubling aspect of the report because it appears to be pitting poor white people against poor black people. Yes, of course, the government should look at the unperformance and potentially low aspirations of some poor white working class areas of both the North and South. But that is not a reason to ignore racism and its impact on ethnic minorities. The things that hold white working class people back are very different to the discriminatory practices, uh, both direct and subtle, that see black pupils being excluded at a much higher rate of school. One suspects the government... Uh, which selects its commissioners carefully, believes that there are votes won by this narrative, which fuels white working-class grievance and has them seeing people of colour as the enemy. To their new northern voters, some conservatives seem to be saying, quote-unquote, uh, quote, let's take back control and stop pandering to the anti-racist activists, unquote. Uh, there is not much good that I see in this report, except for what many minority ethnic parents already know, that the pursuit of education is our best opportunity to get out of poverty, Thank you. Thank thank you. Pin that shit. Put that on a fucking wall. Continuing on. Sorry. I just had to get out of that. That was, that was a banging quote. Um, uh, this is clearly not enough in itself, though, because discrimination has been shown to be an issue, even for those who are highly educated. Big facts. Uh, but there is something to be positive about. The Black Lives Matter protests have not protested in vain. Uh, never before in British society have business, uh, business in our business, our institutions, and the public at large been more receptive to our lived experiences and more understanding of the myriad uh, ways that racism affects us. The government and its puppet commission, <laughs> puppet commission uh, may be in denial, but many of our leading figures are up for a change. If they keep up on this trajectory, keep on this trajectory, uh, they and all of us will ultimately be, ultimately be winners, unlocking talent, bringing together a greater sense of belonging, above all being comfortable with who we are and our shared and diverse talent will work for the benefit of society as a whole. Britain is changing. We must seize the opportunity to be a dynamic, multicultural nation to confront and deal with deep-seated inequalities in spite of denial by some. Eventually, all areas of government, particularly number 10, will be forced to catch up. And that's just wonderful. Like, the whole thing is well-balanced. Um, it you know, delivers on the big, I think, talking points that have come through in the past week. Um, and just gives, like I said to the, before I started, a great just all-round statement on how just jarring and silly this uh, report is in uh, in in its uh, in its root. I think um, you know I've I've talked about on this podcast several times um, about education. Um, I've talked about uh, multiculturalism and how that benefits all of us. Um, you know, because putting down like, uh, women, uh, of any race, or just women in general, as it, you know, as pertains to, like, the gender pay gap, all that kind of stuff, um, and also just putting down, uh, 
racial minorities, uh, whether they be uh, Afro-Caribbean, um, uh, Afro-Caribbean, African or Caribbean, or Afro-Caribbean, there's Afro-Caribbeans, uh, you know, uh, mixed race, uh, uh, Bangladeshi, Pakistan, right, Asian in general, right, all of them, um, putting those people down and putting anybody down in general, whether it be classism, racism, whatever, right, actually brings all of us down in some way like it doesn't feel like it because you know a lot of these things are very um can be very um uh, individualized like i can only talk about my personal experience to things um you know you know verbatim um but i can relate i can empathize with a lot of people uh, a lot on a lot of fronts but i can never you know fully fully be in somebody's shoes okay um there's just some there's just some things that you can you can relate to but you can never actually get the full picture so i don't really understand why you know the government and and that that point about um you know pitting uh you know poor white people against poor black people you know that's a real thing that's a real thing that i feel like the powers that be um make a concerted effort to do um in a in a in a lot of ways over the past uh, you know few decades right it's a, and it's and it's easy right it's easy to it's easy to do that it's easy to um put classism aside uh, or use classism to their advantage in some ways and gain people's uh fears i mean look how we left the eu that's, that's a perfect example look how we left the eu a majority of that was due to people having fears, excuse me, fears of immigration. And my answer to all of that, as always, since since from 2016 to before that, right, my simple answer was, um, have you seen the people that are trying to migrate here? Like, like most of them most of them are only coming because their country is literally rubble like it's it's not <laughs> they're, they're not coming to they're not coming to i don't know infiltrate you know what i mean uh it's it's not it's not like, <laughs> like you, know, you know what i mean it's just, it's not that's not the their goal is not to kill whitey you know what i mean it's not it's not that's not what we're here for that wasn't the point of windrush Right, that wasn't the point of Windrush. That wasn't the point of any of these uh, migrations that we've had over the few past few decades, right? Windrush obviously being the most notable, but there have been a few others over the past decades that probably don't have names, but you can chart that anyway. Um, but <sighs> this this whole thing, and uh, you know, I talked about it very um, heatedly um, last week, but. You know, I'm moving on from this now, um, after this, um, I just wanted to get a great overall thought about this and put it on wax, um, because I feel like this response by Simon Woolley is very measured, and I appreciate him for that, and really covers a lot of bases, um, that, uh, I can't even just, I can't even pin down everything that he said, to be honest, because it's just all, it's all great, but there are some great just mini points here and there, um, going through, but, um, you know, just, just guys, just know that there are other reports out there that have dropped in the past few years um, that have that completely 
uh, either debunk or just um, paint a very real picture, a much more real picture of what uh, people in the UK uh, face as it pertains to racism and as it pertains to uh, subsets of that, whether it be, you know, race in employment, um, uh, race in uh, health, care, whatever, you know, I mean, all that kind of stuff, just society in general. Um, and there are many recommendations that um, have been put forward by a lot of people, a lot of smart people, smarter than I, and uh, the government refuses to even acknowledge them. Uh, but instead, they pose this, you know, 250-plus page of he- of, uh, of a uh, charged um, dismissive language. So, take that information how you will. I'm going to leave it there. And let's continue on. So we hop into our first of two film and TV uh, segments for this episode, and uh, this is about Netflix, and specifically Netflix in Europe. I found this really fascinating article in The Economist, um, this is part of their uh, April 3rd, uh, 2021 uh, edition, uh, part of their uh, Europe section of the print edition, under the headline, Netflix Europa. Um, and it's called How Netflix is Creating a Common European Culture. And uh, I just found this uh, commentary and uh, about Netflix and uh, very uh, very fascinating as it pertains to just um, European content and also just commentary on um, again I keep having to say this to people of how I don't think people understand how ubiquitous Netflix is right and you know I I say this not as a to gas Netflix right because I've I've talked about Netflix in you know, a, I, I, I don't, I don't want to say in a positive light, but in a uh, informed light. Let's just say that, right? In a realistic and informed light, because you know, I see a lot of people, you know, going like Netflix is clapped, like Netflix sucks, etc., etc. This streaming's better, da 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 da. But I don't think, I don't think people, f- I think people fail to understand how uh, global Netflix is, and I say that compared to every other streaming site okay you know disney uh coming up right that they, they, they're the second most popular in the world and you know that makes sense because it's fucking disney right <laughs> it's it's disney disney owns everything uh you know it, it, they should they should be uh in direct competition they should be competing with netflix for supremacy it's just how it is right and i've talked about disney in an informed like uh you know previously i've talked about the streaming wars informed and uh, uh, uh yeah in, in in informed fashion right but you know when it comes to stuff like amazon prime video which you know the numbers of those are very murky because uh some of those just come with um you know just general amazon prime so you can't uh, are they actually watching anything i don't know um that so the numbers are murky on that front and you know hbo max hulu all that all the american-based ones Ain't ain't sniffing. I'm not even sniffing what Netflix numbers get. Okay, and I'm not saying that to guess. Again, I'm not saying it to guess. And you can only say Britbox as well in Britain. Um, but you know, I'm not saying it to guess. I'm just saying it as an informed opinion. And uh, this kind of makes my point. Uh, this whole article uh, is that furthers my point that how ubiquitous Netflix is. So let's just jump right in. 
Uh, Barbarians, a Netflix drama set in uh, set 2,000 years ago in ancient Germania, uh, inverts some modern stereotypes. In it, sex- sexy, impulsive, proto-German tribesmen take on an impressive, oppressive superstate led by cold, rational Latin speakers from Rome. Produced in Germany, it has all the hallmarks of a glossy American drama. Uh, brackets, gratuitous violence and prestige nudity. Nice. Uh, while remaining unmistakably German. Uh, in one episode, someone swims through a ditch full of scheisse. Oh, shit, right, yeah, okay. Um, it is a popular mix. Uh, on Sunday, uh, on a Sunday in October, it was the most watched show on Netflix, not just in Germany, but also in France, Italy, and 14 other European countries. Moments when Germans sit down, uh, Europeans, sorry, sit down and watch the same thing at roughly the same time used to be rare. They included the Eurovision Song Contest and Champions League Football with not much in between. Now they are more common, thanks to the growth of streaming platforms, such as Netflix, which has 58 million subscribers on the continent. For most of its existence, television was a national affair. Uh, broadcasters stuck rigidly to, inter- to national borders, pumping out French programs for the French, and Danish ones for the Danes. Streaming services, however, treat Europe as one large market, rather than 27 individual ones, with the same content available in each. Jean Monnet, uh, one of the EU's founding fathers who came up with the idea of mangling together national economies to stop Europeans from killing each other, was once reputed uh, to have said, quote, if I were to do it again from scratch, I would start with culture, unquote. Seven decades on from the era of Monet, uh, cultural integration is beginning to happen. Umberto Eco, an Italian writer, was right when he said the language of Europe is translation. Netflix and other deep-pocket global firms speak it well, just as the EU employs a small army of translators and interpreters to intricate, uh, t- to turn intricate laws or impassioned speeches of Roman e- MEPs into t- EU's 24 official languages. So do the likes of Netflix. It, is now, off- it now offers the dubbing in 34 languages and subtitling in a few more. The result in that uh, capital. Capitani, a uh, cop drama written in Luxembourgish. Luxembourgish? I, I, I literally, I've I just found out Luxembourg have their own language. There you go. <laughs> just learn something new every day. Uh, a language so modest is not even recognised by the EU. Oh, there you go. Um, can be watched in any of English, uh, French or Portuguese or with Polish subtitles. Before a top French uh, show could be expected to be translated... Uh, into English and perhaps German, only if it was successful. Now, it's the norm for any release. The economics of European productions are more appealing to. Are more appealing to. American audiences are more willing than uh, before to give dubbed or s- subtitle viewing a chance. I just want to stop here and say, um, if if you are watching any show uh, dubbed, um, don't talk to me. Uh, I I I dubbed makes me cringe. I, I can't do it um, my mum watched some i think like latin american show one time and uh, she didn't know you can just get subtitles so it just it was default uh, it was default dub english dub and just watching english go over the you know spanish talking mouths jarred the fuck out of me and always and will always jarred the fuck out of me um it's the same with anime uh it just can't do it can't do it if you do dub um i i can't I can't deal with you, but any, but I say that, I say that, and I watch Yu-Gi-Oh back in the day, and that, that shit was clearly, <laughs> that shit was clearly not in uh, original English, right, so, so, you know, 
I'm I'm a hypocrite, but in these days, I I would like in most cases, apart from children's shows, because I feel that's different. But don't test me on that, because I have no uh, no <laughs> uh, uh, factual backing of why I, I feel that way. Um, but just to say, if you if you if you if you're not subbing, don't talk to me. Anyway, uh, this means uh, shows such as Lupin, a French crime caper on Netflix, can become global hits. It is worth taking a punt on an expensive retelling of an early 20th century detective series about a gentleman jewel thief in Paris uh, if it has the potential to explode beyond France. In 2015, about 75% of Netflix's original content was American. Now the figure is half. According to Ampere, a media analysis company, Netflix has about 100 productions underway in Europe, which is more than big, bro- uh, big public broadcasters in France or Germany. And European officials wield a stick to encourage uh, investment. European filmmakers rival farmers in the ranking of cosseted European industries. Uh, To operate in the EU, streaming companies are required to ensure at least 30% of their catalogue held from the block and uh, to promote it. Buying a back catalogue... Excuse me, I need to wipe my eyes. Uh, buying a black cat back catalogue of 1990s Belgian soap operas okay, uh, and hide them, hiding them in a digital cupboard does not count. France compels big media firms to kick back refer- uh, revenues into domestic production. If European governments are intent on shaking, uh, shaking down big American firms, it is better for everyone that the money is spent on something watchable. Norofin works across borders, uh, comedy sometimes struggles, which is so facts. I said this to a friend, I forgot who I said it to, but I told them a story about uh, a Dutch friend I had in university. He came round for like a, a semester, and la-di-da, we uh, had, a, had a lecture where we watched a Dutch comedy short film. And, you know, it was okay, right? It was, it was you know, you know, you could get chuckles in there, but he was, this Dutch dude was dying laughing and it made no fucking sense of how hard he was laughing like you know there were some funny elements and you can get the punchlines right you can understand the punchlines you can see where it's coming from right but he was fully dying i'm just like bro it's not that funny but that's how comedy is man it is so it is really really hard to just do international comedy because everyone has different uh different uh uh views on comedy it's really interesting anyway it definitely sometimes struggles. Uh, whodunits and bloodthirsty maelstroms between arch, arc, arc Romans or arch Romans, arch Romans, uh, and uppity tribesmen have a more universal appeal. Uh, some do it better than others. Barbarians aside, German television is not always built for export, uh, says one executive, being polite. A bigger problem is that national broadcasters still dominate. Streaming services such as Netflix or Disney Plus account for about a third of all viewing hours, even in markets where they are well established. Uh, Europe is an aging continent. The generation of teens uh, staring at phones is outnumbered by the elders who prefer to gawp at the box. In Brussels and national capitals, the prospect of Netflix as cultural hegemon, I think it's, I think it's how you say it, um, is seen as a threat. Uh, cultural sovereignty, sovereignty, quote unquote, is the watchword of European executives worried uh, that the Americans, the Americans, will eat their lunch. To be fair, Netflix content sometimes uh, seems stuck in an uncanny valley uh, somewhere in the mid-Atlantic with local quirks stripped out. Netflix originals uh, tend to have fewer specific cultural references than shows produced by domestic rivals, according to Enders, a market analyst. The company used to have an imperial model of commissioning, with executives in Los Angeles cooking up ideas French people might like. Ugh. 
Now that does not sound good at all. Uh, now Netflix has offices across Europe. That sounds better. Uh, but ultimately, the big decisions rest with American executives. That's not good. This makes European politics nervous and politicians nervous. Uh, they should not be. An irony of European integration is that it often uh, it is often American companies that facilitate it. Google Translate makes European newspapers con- comprehensible, even if a little clunky. Uh, for the continent's non-polyglots, polyglots. There's a lot of big words here. Polyglots? I've never heard of that word before. Um, American social media companies make it easier for Europeans to talk politics across borders. Uh, that they do not always like to hear what they say about each other is another matter. Uh, now Netflix and friends pump the same content into homes across the continent, making culture a cross-border endeavour too. Uh, if Europeans are to share a currency, bail each other out in times of financial need, and share vaccines in a pandemic... Then they need to have something in common, even if it is just binging on the same series. Watching fictitious Northern and Southern Europeans tear each other apart 2,000 years ago beats doing so in reality. And that's a very um, optimistic way of looking at things, I must admit. Um, I, I'm, I'm trying to look at this from a British perspective, right? And it's interesting because... Um, uh, I, I, obviously, we're not in the EU anymore. <laughs> um, so you know, most of that sharing shit is just out the fucking window now, and that just pisses me off. And just every time I read it about sharing vaccines and stuff, I'm just like, it just grits teeth. Um, but, uh, but yeah, you know, uh, looping. Yeah, you know I mean that that was a that was a thing. That was a thing uh, around here. Um, so, and I think, uh, I think, I think honestly. I would say, in the UK especially, I can't say for other countries, right, but there was a time just before Netflix became a thing, right, just before there, like early in the last decade, right, I was starting to see a few, um, a few just, you know, just reaches outside. I remember there was like this, uh, I think Norwegian, like really dark and just, like visually just really dark, it just, it seemed like there was like a dim switch all over it. It was like some detective drama. I forget what it was called, but it wasn't very uh, enlightening. But people was like calling it the, the Swedish Broadchurch, I think, something like that. And I didn't even see Broadchurch that, that deep, so yeah, <laughs> I can have nothing uh, to say about it. But yeah, it was like super dark. Um, I remember The Tunnel, which is a fucking amazing series. Uh, and that was like a British-French uh, uh, collaboration, I think, between Sky and Canal Plus. Um, so, you know, there, there was some good stuff going, uh, Fortitude, I think, was another one, I think that was Icelandic, um, so, yeah, I can name a few shows that, you know, I saw before Netflix was becoming a thing, and before they were doing all this, you know, uh, just, uh, uh, catering to the European audience and European market, um, so, uh, you know, it's not, I don't think it's, I, I don't want to say they started it, right, but they clearly found a, um, they clearly have the P to do so in a much more um, ubiquitous way where everyone can watch it because obviously Netflix is everywhere and not everyone has a, a Skybox, right? Obviously. Um, even though Sky exists in, I think, like Italy, I think just Italy, maybe Spain. Does Spain have a Sky Sports? I don't know, but anyway, you know, I'm getting that. Um, so, yeah, it's harder for other people to do that, but. Um, you know, I just wanted to say, like, uh, I've I've seen some, you know, places uh, like Channel Four and Sky, uh, you know, make a little bit of effort on that front. But obviously, they can't do it as uh, as fast 
and uh, to a wider uh, and to an audience as wide as what Netflix has, because obviously Netflix is, you know, quote unquote decentralized in that front. So, uh, yeah, man, Netflix is all over the place, and it just um, it just baffles my mind uh, of of how I- I'm I'm very surprised other companies haven't done it yet. Uh, done it yet? I'm surprised I haven't got HBO Max over here. Um, surprise who ain't over here like if you really want to get numbers you need to go past the america go past american i'm only talking about american streaming services i'm sure there are other streaming services uh, uh in other places but you know if you want numbers you just have to grow in it you just have to hop continents and cater to those continents um you know netflix is doing stuff in africa um they recently killed off queen sono which i'm not happy about but you know it is what it is obviously looping like i said and other things but yeah man it's a uh, it's a, it's a real it's a real thing out here, and uh, I think not even not even Disney can get on this level right now uh, as to you know as a, as it pertains to catering to uh, more audiences that aren't American. On to our second film and TV uh, segment, and this is all about uh, the powers that be, uh, mo- mostly in America, because it's obviously this is by um, the Washington Post uh, by Alyssa Rosenberg, and uh, yeah, so it's mainly talking about obviously just uh, American elites, but uh, I think it, I think it can apply to other places. Um, uh, I'm, I'm sure, uh, but yeah, it's called uh, "Why the World's Most Powerful People Just Want to Podcast and Make TV Shows," which just the fuck out of me. And I noticed this before, like we all see, you know, the Obamas, and uh, I recently, uh, I re- I re- recently found out that uh, Matt Gates, uh, the the American congressman that's recently been a uh, uh, suspected of um, uh, um, uh, underage uh, things. <laughs> for lack of a better phrase, um, and he has a podcast, I'm just like, why, uh, but I know why, and uh, I was listening to The Weeds, uh, which is a good podcast, a uh, very uh, American-centric political podcast, and uh, Alyssa Rosenberg, I think she was on it, I think I think it was her talking about it, um, and they were just basically talking about, uh, uh, what was it, just um, the, media, the media in general, and uh, how uh, television... Uh, uh, has uh, changed uh, America in, in some in some ways. Uh, let me let me get up the episode right quick. Cause it's a very fascinating episode. Uh, yeah, cultural criticism. It was about culture, um, and it did have Alison Rosenberg. So like you know, just stuff like J.K. Rowling's you know, any tra- any trans political comments and uh, can you be a fan of Brooklyn Nine Nine without you know looking too deep into the politics of cops in New York. Um, so yeah, it's it's a very fascinating conversation. So uh, I might I might drop a link to that just um, if you guys want to. That's about an hour long, so it's, it's very good. Uh, but yeah, I wanted to get into this article uh, that was just pinned to it, and just made me it just fascinating bit about it. So let's just jump right. In. Uh, on Tuesday, after Democrats suggested uh, responding to mass shootings in the Atlanta area and Boulder, Colorado, with sensible gun control le- legislation. Senator Ted Cruz called a suggestion, uh, quote-unquote, ridiculous theater. Uh, yes, this was the same Ted Cruz who was advanced of the absurd fiction uh, that 2020 election results were suspect and the bat and begged the audience at the conservative uh, at CPAC to subscribe to his podcast. 
Bark, even Ted Cruz at the podcast. I, meant, I bet that's garbage. Uh, while it's infuriating to hear Cruz uh, dismiss substantive efforts to stop mass shootings as theatre, uh, while engaging in uh, so much performative politics of his own, he's far from the only public figure who sometimes seems more interested in making content than making policy. The stories we tell and our public conversations certainly have an impact on our collective sense of, what, of what's possible. But watching powerful people dive into podcasts and streaming deals sends a depressing message about the prospect of achieving change through traditional cha- traditional channels. Take Florida Representative Matt Gates, there you go, uh, best known for attempting to outdo former pre- President Donald Trump's children as Trump's mo- most ardent defender. Since arriving in Congress in 2017, Gates has introduced 23 pieces of legislation. But between May and December of last year, Gates recorded 153 episodes of his podcast, Hot Takes with Matt Gates. Ugh. Ugh. Cringe. Cringe, cringe, cringe. Uh, on subjects ranging from newly elected Alabama sen- Senator Tommy Tuberville uh, to the Netflix miniseries Tiger King. <laughs> the podcast is on hiatus, but Gates' office confirmed it. <laughs> Uh, important information, Gates Podcast will come back. Like, fuck off, bro, because shit. Uh, do your job, love. Like, you know what I mean? Just do your job. Anyway, uh, talk alone can have a substantial political impact. Of course, the late radio show radio host Rush Limbaugh uh, was one of the most important services of his generation, and the flourishing, flourishing of podcasts has created a new space for advocates to advance unusual ideas and argue in different tones. But there's just something odd about watching members of Congress behave as if they can exert more influence through their performances and through their day jobs. Joe Rogan's power may lie solely in his pulpit, but the Gateses and Cruises of the world can try to pass laws or perform oversight related to issues they podcast about. Uh, yeah, related to issues they podcast about, sorry. Uh, rep- fresh- freshman rep- uh, representative? Yeah, the representative uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene who declared the committee assignments she lost, quote-unquote, a waste of time, represents a worrisome new frontier in this trend. She may not have a podcast, but she came to Washington with no apparent intention to actually do her job. Instead, she's a star of an ongoing piece of political performance art. It does make more sense to set free, uh, to see free floating political forces like former President and former First Lady, Barack and Michelle Obama, or the Duke of Jackson. Duke and Duchess of Sussex, uh, embrace podcasts and film and television production, uh, why refuse delivery when companies like Netflix and Spotify arrive with pallets of cash? As Prince Harry told Oprah Winfrey in a blockbuster interview this month, last month, uh, the offers did provide his family with an income at a moment when they faced a host of new financial obligations. Like tax, anyway. Uh, and maybe, two monetizing friendships with extremely famous people is more dignified than Hawking Viagra or Good Luck Light Margarine. Uh, as Bob Dole and Eleanor Roosevelt did, respectively. But there is a difference between what's fun and lucrative for the influential people involved and what might actually make a difference. Bruce Springsteen and Barack Obama certainly sound like they're enjoying themselves in Renegades, born in the USA. Uh, another cringe title, by the way. Uh, the podcast they taped as part of Obama's Spotify deal, uh, but introducing the series with, length- le- with a lengthy discussion how these two very famous people became friends was an excruciating mistake. It made the whole thing seem like an attempt to cash in on a bull session that would have happened anyway. Waffles and Mochi, uh, Michelle Obama's new children's series from Netflix, is more useful, but only to a point. 
In each episode, the titular puppets who work at a grocery, uh, owned by Mrs. Obama herself, uh, explore a new idea about healthy food. Yeah, the show seems engineered for kids whose parents need it least. Guests like uh, Salt Fast Acid Heat, author uh, Samin Nosrats and Chef Jose Andres uh, are a hook for well-off foodie parents hoping to raise little gastronomes. <laughs> Glorious. Glorious subliminal messaging. Um, to be fair, the Obamas and Sussexes, both families, have also, also have charitable fun, uh, foundations uh, through which they're funding programs like My Brother's Keeper Alliance and donating with, to efforts like Andres's World Kitchen Central and Winter Storm Relief. But as the Atlantic's Caitlin Flanagan wrote acidly of... I love that word, acidly. I, I want to write acidly of someone. I need to... I want to write acidly of someone. Uh, of Prince Harry's uh, career transition, there's, there's a distinction between the elevated realm of pure public service and the more fun but lesser, lesser sphere of uh, content creation, much less serving as the quote-unquote chief impact officer for an embarrassing-sounding personal coaching startup. Anyone can have a podcast... I should know. I have nearly five of them. Uh, <laughs> not everyone can write legislation or exert mass moral authority. Uh, when the few people uh, uh, who can do the latter seem more interested in the former, we ought to listen. If people this powerful are prioritizing podcasting and streaming over policymaking and philanthropy, maybe our traditional tools for change are in trouble. And I think that last paragraph is really the crux of everything here. Like, these people would rather record 150 silent episodes of their fucking podcast in the space of a few months. I've I've been doing this weekly, you know, with, the, you know, brief breaks here and there uh, for for two years. You know what I mean? Like, that, that's, that's, that's on a weekly thing. I record for an hour or so, I edit for an hour or so, I, and then I slap it on. Uh, that's two, that's two, three hours out of my day, right, and then you multiply that by, uh, you know, a couple more podcasts, right, that's a few hours in a week, right, I can do other stuff, you know what I mean, that's, that's kind of why, I can do other stuff, if I was a politician, okay, and, you know, I compare this to something like uh, David Lammy, who's now in LBC, right, I think there's a bit of a difference to that, right, because I don't find having a show on LBC where idiots like, uh, what was that What was that woman's name like a week or so ago? Jean, was it? Jean, was it? Where she was, like, talking about how Anglo-Saxon Saxon she was and, like, oh, just just the, just the mask off racism she had on fucking national radio. Um, you know, I don't, fi- I don't find a show on LBC where people like Jean can bark in my ear about fucking uh, how racism doesn't exist or whatever. Um... I find that a bit different to waffles and mochi. You know what I mean? Just a, there's, there's a little bit different than that. You know what I mean? And I'm sure David Lambie's getting a bag for that, right? I'm sure he's getting a bag, but that's not fun. That's not fun. And in, in, if it was, if he wasn't getting bag for it, that was that's legitimately a public service, right there. You know what I mean? But I'm, I'm assuming he gets a bag, so it's not a public service. But still, it's a, it's, a, it's some, there's some sort of service element nonetheless. To you know, talk to an actual politician who's in politics right now. And is doing his things uh, for the for, for you know for the for the borough of Tottenham and all that stuff. And I, I'm kind of okay with that, right? Uh, but when it comes to someone you know like a Matt Gates or a Ted Cruz, where you know they have legitimate power and have legitimate standing in their own party, but they choose to rather record podcasts. That there's something wrong there. There's something wrong there. And you know just as you know as a final thought. Adds to the litany of problems 
that the American polit uh, <laughs> that the American politics system uh, has uh, <laughs> that that there are some people that would rather you know do do cartwheels and uh, say you know trans people aren't people like Marjorie Taylor Greene or some shit you know in halls and actually not do their fucking job like you know just it's just great it's just wonderful. Shout out to American politics. You will always have uh, uh, a form of entertainment. Uh, in, my, in be a form a form of entertainment in my eyes. Bloody, I'm hungry. All right, uh, let's get to this last. Uh, uh, segment and uh, uh, sports, and we're talking about the World Cup in Qatar next year. Um, I've said on this podcast before, I think way back uh, in earlier episodes, uh, just saying that you know people died. Pe- people, uh, a lot of people died making these stadiums. Okay, and I feel like if you're gonna uh, you know give someone a World Cup. Or even Olympics, right? Olympics, I see, uh, uh, you know, are very complicit in this kind of shit as well. But FIFA, in this in this case, um, I feel like if if people have to die uh, for you to host a, a, a tournament, I feel like you shouldn't go to that country. I know, right? Hot take, I know. Sorry, guys. I just, I just burn your ears with that hot take. I'm sorry, guys. I'm sorry. Get, get, I'll give you a minute. Go, go douse off a war. But, you know, I just don't think it should happen. But now that it's a year away... Uh, people are starting to talk about it all of a sudden, you know, better late than never, but we're here. Uh, so this is by Zach Garner-Perkis, this is via Forbes, it's called World Cup Qatar 2022, calls for a boycott spring from the Arctic Circle. And it's just glorious, so let's get into it. The prospect of Norway boycotting next winner's World Cup in Qatar began in the Arctic Circle. It started when players from, I'm assuming it's called Tromso Il... I'm being very generic about this. I'm I'm sure it's something with more finesse, but I'm going to say Chomzo Il. Uh, the northernmost professional soccer club in the world, soccer, this is American dude, uh, came across an, an article by British newspaper, The Guardian article, uh, that shocked them. The investigation, published last month, claimed that more than 6,500 migrant workers from India, Pakistan, Nepal, Bangladesh and Sri Lanka have died in Qatar since it won the right to host the World Cup uh, around a decade ago. The expose uh, adds long-standing concerns about how the Middle East nation won the right to host the tournament. There have been numerous allegations of bribery between the Qatar Big Committee. I don't, I don't, even, I don't even talk about that, but yeah, that's another point. Uh, Committee of FIFA members and executives since this award. Uh, after reading about the deaths, uh, the players and staff at Tromso uh, decided to take a stand. And so, late last month, it called officially for a tournament boycott from the Norwegian national team. Quote, we felt like the World Cup is the most beautiful thing we have in football. Stop saying soccer. Uh, something that you look forward to in every four years, says Tromso midfielder Ruben Yittergaard Jensen. I'm gonna. I'm, I'm, I, 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 Scandinavian names are on my Achilles heel, man. I, I can't. Um, <laughs> quote. Now it's going to be held, uh, played the guitar. Uh, when you know about the allegations of how Qatar got the World Cup and you hear about the death of many migrant workers, we think it's awful. It's been so many years and not enough has changed. Uh, people are still dying and suffering, uh, so we felt like something had to happen, unquote. A former Norwegian international with 39 caps, Tromso native Jensen, 
and is back at his hometown club after spells in playing in Germany and Holland. He and the rest of the team were pleased to have made it stand, uh, but had little idea what it would lead to. As well as attracting a vast amount of media attention, the stance was replicated by four fellow Norwegian clubs, Rosenborg BK, Balklub, uh, Stroms, Godset, uh, Viking and Braun. Uh, I'm tripping over these names with <laughs> fucking finesse right now. <laughs> I'm a Bambi on ice right now. Uh, it led to the Norwegian national team uh, displaying T-shirts with the words "Human Rights" on and off the pitch uh, during the national anthem before its midweek game against Gibraltar. The gesture was replaced by the Dutch and German national teams who wore T-shirts displaying human rights messages before their recent games. "Quote: We're, We were expecting maybe a few news articles and some phone calls," continued Jensen, but it went further than that. Germany and Netherlands and other big countries are also taking a stand. This thing with Qatar has al- it's always been there. But we haven't done anything. But that's changed. Now people suddenly have a voice. I have, a, I have an easy response to all of this, by the way, and I'm going to finish up on it later. Uh, but I could have, e- I could easily end it here. But I'll continue. <clears throat> he hopes that uh, this puts pressure on FIFA to the point where it needs to take action and improve the situation for workers in the country. We as the most, nor- we as the northernmost professional uh, club in the world are far away from where football really happens. We are just a tiny part of the world. But when we see all the big countries falling in line with our stance, I don't think FIFA can ignore it anymore, unquote. The past year has been something of a political awakening for the world of football. He, he keeps saying soccer, by the way. I'm just going to keep changing the football just for principle. The principality of the situation. Um, players around the world have been taking uh, the knee in solidarity with those striving for racial equality, while players like Mesut Ozil and Marcus Rashford have used their profile to take bold stances on political issues. Jensen says... Uh, there are other fundamental reasons why he and his teammates felt able to make this type of statement. I think it's probably always been many players uh, are interested in are interested in eth- eth- ethics sorry, and politics, he says. Uh, but I think the difference now is that the world is smaller through communication, through technology. Everything feels close. <clears throat> uh, that's why Qatar is not just some place far away that you read about in the newspapers. We feel that we can have an impact. I think that's a big difference. Unlike the United Kingdom or United States and Scandinavian countries, there are there is more of a practice of refusing to be part of certain, pro- certain projects or doing business with pro- uh, groups that have questionable human rights or environmental records. Oh, I, I'd love that. Oh, wishful thinking. Uh, Jensen explains that many of the clubs in Norway will refuse to have certain sponsors to avoid travelling to places like Dubai for warm weather training camps on an ethical basis. Good for you guys. Good for you. Seriously, honestly, like this is real. This is real good. Um, uh, I'm, I'm being sarcastic, but it's really good. Shout out to them. Uh, that is an ample approach to take, but it comes, uh, but it becomes pretty complicated quickly when you, uh, when you consider how globalize, how the globalized economy works. For example, if you've bought almost any high, ele- uh, high-end uh, electrical device, the chances are it has cobalt from the Congo. Uh, inside this mineral is known to be mined by children and has funded a brutal civil war in the country. That is great facts. And there was actually a great Telegraph article uh, that I saw recently on Twitter. And it was called The World, uh, the War That The World Forgot. Um, it was about a war in the Congo. And uh, yeah, it's a brutal read. Brutal fucking read. Um, uh, the massive supply chains the mineral is filtered through makes it easy to dissociate the shiny phone in your hand, which I'm literally reading from, uh, from the brutal actions thousands of miles away, but it doesn't make them any less connected. I asked Jensen, Jensen if the approach taken to the World Cup has opened Pandora's box of ethical and moral conundrums. 
Does it, for example, mean that teams uh, should boycott games against clubs like Paris Saint-Germain or Manchester City, who are strongly aligned with leadership of countries with questionable human rights records? This is a great question. Quote, the big difference here is, like, the World Cup belongs to everyone in the world, Jensen replies. You have to start somewhere and draw a line. I can see that sometimes this is a difficult, difficult dilemma, but now we just have to start and hope that more and more follow. Okay, I'm going to end it there for the sake of time, um, but there is a few a few more solid paragraphs to this. Um, but my only point <clears throat> is um, the, the, the set of quotes that he gave uh, in the middle here, uh, where he goes, uh, he hopes that this puts pressure on FIFA to, put, to the point where it needs to take action and improve the situation for workers in the country, right? <clears throat> my, my, my overall point um, for this, right? And, um, you know, the the Congo Cobalt um, issue uh, is a great thing to shout out. And obviously it, you know, it makes a, it makes a genuine point about uh, the futility of all of this, you know what I mean? Of being on a pedestal about ethical uh, issues, whether it pertains to human rights or anything, you know, just generally horrible, right? Um all of our smartphones have cobalt in it, right? It's just, it's, it's, it's something that, uh, you know, I don't think people even know, right? It, just from an informational perspective. And what do you want them to do? Not get smartphones, right? It's the 21st century, right? It is what it is. But um, there, there's going to have to be a conversation about that at some point, right? And even saying that kind of adds to the point I was going to make here. But I'll, I'll stick it to football here. Um, since it's about football, but saying like you know uh, when we see all the big countries falling in line with our stance, right? This is the the mo- the one point I come away with all of this is is this. This none of this matters. Dot dot dot. Unless you all boycott the World Cup. And I don't think anyone is going to boycott the World Cup wholesale until there is a genuine conversation about the potential of that happening. Then I will listen and I will listen intently and I will support it wholesale. But to say that you're doing all this, right, and, you know, again, all great, all great, and, you know, keep this with the cobalt point in mind, because, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of being hip- hypocritical in this, in this overall fashion, so that's not lost on me, okay? But I just want you to, want you to get, that, get that side of it as I say these. But if you don't, if you do all this and make all the hullabaloo about it, sure, you'll get a few articles. Yeah, of course you will. You'll get the articles up, all the clicks up, all the it'll, it'll, it'll spread the word, right? As social media does, it tends to do. But none of this matters if the World Cup goes down. And you know, you could be that person and go like, uh, "Well, people have already died. Do you want the do you want their death to go in vain? To be in vain, right? In that fashion." And I find that a bit gross. Right, I find that a little bit gross to say, like, so, so since nearly seven thousand people have died, you want them to play the game, 
you want everyone to go there anyway to what in memory of them that would be ve- that would be very um that would be very uh, uh, um you know what's the, what's the word i'm looking for um <laughs> that would be very uh, nice of you for lack of a better phrase right but very nice of you to think about but um that kind of gives the idea that um they're going to acknowledge that every single game and I don't think that nobody's going to be wearing t- And this is another thing. I uh, Maybe they'll be wearing the t-shirts at the World Cup. Again, all well and good. But you're at the World Cup, bruv. <laughs> you flew there. You took, you took the hotel. You're training. You're playing the games. I just don't... I just don't... If It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. At the end of the day, all people remember... Are the results of the tournament? Who won the World Cup? That's what. That's all that history will care about. And if I'm, if you think I'm being cynical, go look at um. I don't know any American sport <laughs> where like they ha- un- until the bubble last year in the NBA and WNBA. History will account for that, but most of the time, and Colin Kaepernick, right? History will count for those three moments, or those two moments. But everything else, who won the championship? That's all it's about. Alright? I just wanted to leave on that, because that's just my simple reaction to all of this. It's all well and good, and I fully support it, and, you know, I fully understand it. You know what I mean? It's all great. You know, it's good to get the word out. Awareness is a great thing. But there's no point in doing all that. It's all mute. It's all moot to me if you don't actually put some stake in it. It's the same with the racism stuff in football and other sports. It's all well and good to talk about it, to do a couple of kneels, right? All of that is great. But if you ain't cutting people off, if you ain't punishing teams, if you aren't punishing national teams for their fans' behaviour, if you aren't making genuine steps to punish the people who put who pull this shit on a fucking weekly basis, then it's going to keep continuing. Okay? Simple as. Simple as. If there is no punishment, people will keep doing it. That is a fact of life. A fact of life. And with that said, from the Fifth Men Podcast Network... I have a child telling this been what's good. Hope you enjoyed this episode. Intro music has been too much by Vanilla. Thanks to Job Records for the ability to use that song. You can find both Job Records and Vanilla's links uh, in the full show notes. Shout out to Nappy Hire for the use of Charismatic for the interlude. You can find his website on the full show notes as well. And with that said, hope you all have a good week. I should always try and do the same. But until the next time, take it easy. Ladies and gentlemen.